hello. This is your host, Chloe Lionheart, and you are listening to the Down With My Demons podcast. I'm so glad you all are here. Welcome, welcome. I wanted to touch base with you all before we get into the content of this episode because it is a very edgy conversation. Uh, Trigger warning and uh, graphic content warning. Some of this content is very sexual and graphic by nature and discusses um, some violence and abuse as well as a variety of different sexual terms. This may not be the best conversation to listen to in the presence of a child. I will let you use your judgment on that. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just prepared for the potential backlash and I'm prepared for this to not be okay with some people and I just want you to know that this content of this episode comes with a lot of care and this conversation is not going to be for everyone. There's going to be a lot of probably disagreement. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to feel upset. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to feel shame. Well, it's it's okay to feel guilt, I should say. It's okay to feel confused and to not know and to feel grief. And please know in any of those emotions that you are not alone and that we're here. I wanna name that in no way do Lisa or I condone predatory behavior and lack of consent any any way across the board. So a lot of awareness around how tricky this conversation is. And there's there's no way that Lisa Chatham, who's my guest today, and I could discuss everything involved in every situation or all the variables that are involved in this topic in one hour long conversation or even in days of conversation. It's really tricky. And throughout the episode, I can really hear both of us tiptoeing gently and like walking around eggshells around a lot of this content because both of us are such advocates for people feeling safe to um, be courageous and speak up when things didn't feel right. We are advocates for victims of sexual abuse and assault. And we also are looking at the multifaceted nature of this topic and how situations are not black and white. And there is so much variability involved and so many systemic problems and so many social norms and a really generational pieces here that are shifting. And the landscape of this conversation is shifting constantly. And we could probably have this conversation for a, literally weeks or days or years. And they are. These conversations are being talked about in a lot of different places, um, legally, 
and legislatively and socially and educationally and religiously and all all of the ways that these things are showing up, which is all of the ways. I want to name as well this very important piece that this conversation was recorded in Boulder, Colorado in the United States of America, where there is an enormous amount of gentrification, whitewashing, a lot of privilege, a lot of education, like Lisa and I are both white privileged women who have had the privilege of higher education and who have benefited greatly from the system in many ways. And so the lens that you're hearing this from is from our lens with the hope of uh, including many, if not all, but we're just not going to be able to speak for everyone. And there are so so many voices. Every voice is very important in this conversation and your voice matters and your experiences are valid and how you feel is real. And we are in no way wanting to take away from the very legitimate experiences and feelings and thoughts that people have around this topic. One of the goals that I myself, and I'm sure Lisa as well, is focusing on in this particular conversation is just the nuance and not wanting to directly point the finger in any direction. There's so many reasons for things, whether neurologically, developmentally, societally, religiously, historically, and with gender and expression and pleasure and shadow and real communication problems altogether. So I encourage you to listen to this conversation, all conversations with an open mind and an open heart. And if you ever feel like it's too much or that you're becoming dysregulated, turn it off. Or if you feel as if you're feeling really sort of yuck after you listen, which I'm hoping, you know, no, there's no judgment to your experience. I really want you to feel free, of course, to always experience what you experience and have that be your truth. If for some reason you are feeling dysregulated, please do reach out to a friend, do a grounding practice, take some deep breaths, maybe take a nap, take a shower, and also reach out. If you totally disagree with me, if you have a desire to be heard, if you want to share your experience, I am all ears. I am here to have a conversation. I'm here to listen to all sides and to hear what you think and feel. So please know you're not alone um, and take care of yourself. lucky because we've got Lisa Chatham here who is an amazing educator in person, dog mom, boat mom, human child mom, uh, and therapist. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Chloe. 
Uh, so a little about Lisa. She is has a master's degree and is a faculty member in the psychology and yoga studies department at Naropa University and a psychotherapist in private practice in Boulder, Colorado. For over 10 years, she has worked with young adults, adults, couples, and groups on a wide range of issues, including anxiety and depression, sexuality and identity, failure to launch, intimacy and autonomy in relationships, and psycho-spiritual well-being. She specializes in family systems, forensic psychology, and in the treatment and assessment of men who have been convicted of a sex crime. Welcome. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm really excited you're here. It feels kind of like a full circle moment, which is cool. (laughs) So I had Lisa as a professor when I took abnormal psychology in college, and um, she totally traumatized me with a movie called The Lobotomist, uh, which I was (laughs) at like eight in the morning or something. I'm drinking a smoothie and Lisa begins playing The Lobotomist movie, which I cannot not recommend enough. I mean, it's good. It's good. It's also, it's traumatic. It's traumatic. Um, So I agree. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about you before we dive in? No, nothing's coming to mind. Okay. In the spirit of the show, I'm wondering if you can tell us about a time you interacted with your shadow and explain what unfolded. Oh, a time I interacted with my shadow. Wow, that's a big question. There's just so many times. <laughs> um, that's the purpose of the question. Yeah, there was something this week. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to see if I can remember it because I remember being like, wow. I, I caught myself really projecting um, something this week and it's totally evading me right now. What a bummer. Um, it'd be so perfect because I remember like feeling like that was a big one. Um, but I would say probably most recently, um, you know, I, my youngest child is 16 and we have a pretty close relationship. Um, and I've been noticing, um, a lot of, um, a lot of my own shadow at work in that relationship lately, as she's starting to individuate more and want more autonomy and, and whatnot, of course, everything she's doing is totally normal and everything I'm feeling about it is totally psycho. Um, <laughs> and um, maybe it's cause she's my last kid or, I mean, she's the only one living at home anymore. So I've just been noticing a lot of, um, like projecting, like, um, not feeling safe onto her and not, you know, like, Oh, is she, is she making good choices? Is she going to be safe? Like, you know, um, and really recognizing, um, again and again, as I have so many times in my parenting journey, how important it is for me to stay focused on my own well-being and not expect my children to live in a way that makes me feel more safe and more secure. 
that that mm. sense of stability and security is my job. Um, so mm. yeah, I would say I've been knee deep in that one for the last couple of months. That's actually a perfect segue to our topic, which is consent and the Me Too movement and what feels kind of like this well-intentioned thing that's gotten a little out of control and needs a little bit more like revision before we can really find ourselves in a place where everyone is safe in sexuality Mm. in particular and it wants to be safe (laughs) yeah that's a good point and it feels fitting for the times because it's Scorpio season Scorpio is all about sex and death and the shadow and the mystery so it's like right on time yeah tell me a little bit about what it's like to be a parent with teenagers, both with girls and with boys? How do you set them up for success? Yeah, I um, I think that's a great question. And it's, you know, in success sexually is it success. Um, success, you know, what is what kind of success are we talking about? I mean, different parents have, you know, seem to have a different emphasis on certain priorities and in the home. Um, so, yeah, I, and I would say I've, I've done some things really right and I've done some things really wrong. And so I've come out with like a, um, you know, definitely a lot of ideas about things that work and things that don't. But I think in general, modeling an attitude that everything's workable to your children Mm. is setting them up for success. Um, Modeling open communication. Um, You can talk about anything here. There's no inappropriate conversation. Um, You know, bring it to the table and it can be discussed. Um, And, um, you know, uh, just kind of modeling an attitude of personal responsibility around well-being and self-care, and um, and and making, I guess, making my life what I want my life to be, um, and creating the life that that I want to create, and not blaming other people for that not happening, and yeah, just different different things like that. Um, I think giving less advice and instead modeling more of what you want your kids to, to show, to, to be is, is a huge one. Well, I don't know kids that listen to advice from their parents anyway, (laughs) not till they're maybe when they're older, you know, but while they're growing up. Mm -hmm. I like in your bio that you talked about, at the very end, you said you work with men who have been of, accused of a sex crime, which is convicted. Yeah, which is very <laughs> different wording than saying I work with sex offenders or sexual predators. True. Good catch. <laughs> you're on. Good catch. On you're on to me. That's a good catch. So I'm thinking about 
that work that you do and being a mental health provider, being a care provider for these people who are Mm -hmm. vastly men and, you know, majority than women. And you're also the mother of men. You've got two sons, right? That's true. How... How do you prepare boys in terms of like, what, what do you, with that knowledge that you have and the people that you work with and knowing sort of what the system is like and having an awareness of your own lived experience, how do you sort of prepare your sons to be informed and aware and yeah, I'm trying to tread lightly on the way that I'm asking this question because you're obviously their mother. <laughs> it's like one of your respectful of that. <laughs> I know. Can we call? Can we call? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's true. Like, yeah. you do have to talk to your boys about being in the world and being men in the world. And you have a very interesting perspective on what ha- can happen to people in the world and how is that has that played any role yeah I I oh absolutely I mean I think I I definitely was um more sensitive to the the potential possibility of a sex crime happening because of the work that I do um 50 percent of the people convicted of sex crimes or half of the people convicted of sex crimes last time I checked in Colorado were juveniles. So to me, not only do we have a, you know, a a responsibility to do whatever we can to prevent our child or our children being the victim of a sex crime. We also have just as much of a responsibility to, um, to support our children and not committing a sex crime. Right. And that becomes really difficult with teenage boys because um, there's so many factors involved, like their testosterone levels fluctuating up to 400% in one day. Um, that coupled with, you know, the brain development at that time, the frontal lobe is, you know, that decision-making part of the brain is kind of offline a little bit. Um, and it seems to be more so with some than with others. And I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what all feeds into, feeds into that, you know, what makes one individual seemingly engage in more high risk behaviors than another. Sometimes um, raising children with, you know, um, not enough consequences, not, you know, rescuing kids too much. So they're not, they're not having enough experiences where they're, they're having that um, thinking process of, you know, how is this next decision I make going to impact my life? If you're not having that, you know, enough opportunities to develop that way of thinking, then you might be engaging in more high risk behaviors as a teenager. So, you know, there's all of those factors and then a lot of families don't talk about sex, which is really Preach. problematic, you yeah. know, or even worse, not only do they not talk about it, but, or they'll, you know, it's very taboo um, 
or just the assumption that you won't be having sex until you're married or you're out of the house or, you know, and there's not an acknowledgement of um, sexuality being there. Sometimes some, some kids are feeling um, having sexual impulses at a pretty young age, some later, some younger, you know, how that's responded to kind of is going to like set the stage for how things are going to unfold later. If you have Mm -hmm. a parent, you know, react in horror when they catch their child masturbating for the first time, you know, that is going to really send a strong message. You know, this is, this is secret. This is bad. This is dirty. Um, the thing is too, is, you know, the more of the, the taboo that you create around sexual activity, the stronger the urge and the, uh, the seduction of it is going to be, it's, it's very, you know, um, you probably know this. It's, it's much more, it's much more compelling and uh, fascinating to, to think about that taboo thing. And then when you actually do it, you're like, well, that was okay. But you know, more exciting in my imagination than when it, you know, when it finally played out. Can you explain to us what you mean by high risk behavior? Yeah, I would say um, high risk behaviors or anything that um, puts you at risk for um, harming yourself or harming another person. You know, so for example, drinking and driving would be like a teenage high risk behavior. Some teens do it and some teens don't. Some, some really believe that they should never do that. It's very dangerous, you know, and for some other teenagers, they're like, well, it'll probably be fine. (laughs) Or, you know, and I don't know exactly why, you know, one teenager is always going to be responsible around that and why another teenager isn't because, um, it seems to happen. And, um, even seemingly very responsible children end up, you know, drinking and driving and sometimes with really, you know, with a really sad story as the fallout of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in terms of sexual behavior, um, you know, high risk sexual behavior, not using protection, not having conversations with partners before you have sex with them about what's happening. Um, you know, I think hookup culture is inherently a little bit high risk. Yeah. Our listeners don't really know this about me yet, but they're going to learn very quickly this month. Um about where I stand on sexuality. And um, for all of you who don't know, this is a big passion point for me, no pun intended, (laughs) in (laughs) in terms of education and mental health and safety and um, autonomy. And I see it as such a huge problem all the way around. And so much of the research I've done has been around this, you know, just the topic of sexuality and some of the edgy, like what is socially considered edgy or uh, taboo or, you know, um, quote unquote extreme or whatever. And 
it's really sad to me. Like you're talking about parents who we need to educate our kids on sex. And the more taboo that it seems, the more fun it's going to look to kids or they're going to be more curious about it. If they're not getting answers, if there's no information for them, then they're going to go explore themselves. And one of the, the, the statistical pieces that I found in a lot of my research is that parents feel uncomfortable talking about sex. And so they tell the schools that it's the school's responsibility, but the school doesn't want to be responsible for talking about sex because then they're at the brunt of parents not being okay with that, whether for religious reasons or religion is plays a big role in why schools don't want to teach about sex, which I mean, isn't that just a problem in itself? The no separation of church and state. We don't learn about consent, or at least I didn't. And I guess I can only speak for myself as a millennial and my experience in the world, but it was not ever talked about that someone should be asking me for consent. It's one of those things that if everyone was really into it or like you had a crush on someone and all of a sudden you all are making out, like it was almost assumed that things were going to progress or if they didn't, then you would just like say that you weren't interested. But it was more, I felt up to me as a woman to say, oh no, no thanks, I'm not down with that than to assume that anyone would ever ask me if I was down for anything. So now in this world where consent is this huge deal, and I want to bring up the Me Too movement, not not necessarily talking about its origins of being connected to Harvey Weinstein and the many women that he abused coming, having so much courage to come forward and speak up and that even more people in the industry, uh, the hot, like Hollywood and that industry came forward to speak up. All of those things are incredibly important. And what is shadowy for me, particularly is that oftentimes we as a society will run with something and we could run to the extreme in any direction. And this Me Too movement, however absolutely crucial it is for there to be a platform and for people to feel safe to come forward because most victims of sexual assault or sexual abuse don't ever come forward. So to create that space where people can be coming forward is good. And yet, what does systemic racism play in this? And how does, uh, how can we create checks and balances around protecting not just women, but also men? And I don't want to be binary about this. So anyone identifies as a man, anyone identifies as a woman or any non-binary, anything in between, how do we protect everyone? instead of some. I just don't believe that the issue is so black and white every time. Sometimes it is. A lot of times it's not. I agree. Mm-hmm. Your work with these people who have been convicted of a sex crime, 
You said mm-hmm. most of them are juveniles. I used to work with juveniles and I don't anymore. I only work with adults. Um, but I was just pointing out that a large number of the of the people convicted of sex crimes, at least half, last time I checked, were juveniles. And that to me is is an unacceptable number. That says to me that there's a there's there's a failure on the part of parents, schools, and whoever else, whatever systems might be involved. I um I actually wrote a curriculum to educate kids on consent. Um, I think it was maybe about eight years ago, and I offered to teach it for free in a couple of the Boulder high schools, and nobody took me up on it. I always thought that was interesting. It's really interesting. What do you think that's about? <laughs> uh, and it just, I mean, because I, what I really wanted was for kids to know what the laws were, because a lot of kids were getting in trouble for things that I didn't think that they knew were such a big deal. Like the, uh, the, the consequences are so high. And, you know, if you're a juvenile and you're convicted of a sex crime, you usually can have that taken off your record by the time that you're 18, which is great. Um, but sometimes you'll be removed from your house. You'll you know, have to maybe live in some kind of um, group home for a period of time to, you know, get sometimes taken out of your school. Um, just, just, just very high consequences. So it seemed like a big, a big fail. And I wanted to get involved and, <clears throat> and see where, where I could affect prevention more. Cause that's really, my passion is about prevention. I just think there's, you know, we have really high rates of sex crimes in America. We're like, I think in the top five countries with the highest rates of sex crimes. It seems pretty um, ridiculous for how progressive we're supposed to be. So, you know, we have this kind of illusion of of being progressive and yet we have all these sex crimes going on. So how, how do we prevent that? And the sort of where where my passion was around that. Um, I mean, I, I wrote my thesis on this. <laughs> it's a great question. And, you know, there's just so many um, different areas where we could kind of like, like hone in on this. Like we could look at, are there sexual experiences being labeled a sex crime that are not, should not be labeled as criminal? You know, like how are emotionally messy situations suddenly becoming criminal situations? Mm-hmm. So that's like one thing that we could look at. We could look at, you know, a, a whole spectrum of different areas and issues that are under the, the sex crime umbrella. Um, you know, is is a lack of education about consent the problem is you know, a person's personal sexual interest, the problem, lots of different ways to, to, to talk about those things. But I think you're interested in that gray area of, you know, when does an emotionally messy sexual experience become criminal? And are there times that it's becoming criminal that maybe it shouldn't be? Is there another or another way that we could be dealing with those situations. Yeah. And of course, 
my thought goes to the systemic situation of, of, okay, if I want to be someone who's changing a system or changing something, do I need to start from the very beginning, you know, which for me is more sex education and teaching parents and teaching care providers and teaching um, adults to then teach their kids and starting there and then going to schools and whatever. And I also think we are what I part of what I wrote about and researched is we're still very much like colonialist in our social thinking about sex. We are straight up pilgrims. Yeah. Like the only thing that is socially acceptable (laughs) to talk about anything is holding hands, making out and missionary position. God forbid. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, the female orgasm or like anything other than using your vagina for babies. Like it's, (laughs) it's very crazy to me how puritanical we are. And I think the problem is that we are so constipated sexually as a society that then that taboo, right? So society is like, oh, don't talk about sex. It's not cool. Don't do it. So then the media is like that teenager who's like, oh, I'm going to explore this to the extreme. And our media is so hyper perverted and so skewed. <laughs> yeah. So then, mm-hmm. so how can we not be confused? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Where do we talk about it? Yeah. If we have nowhere to talk about it, then kids aren't talking about it with their families. And then if the school's not really talking about it, and if, you know, we're learning it from our friends or from the internet, then we're learning it from media. And that is a very skewed perspective on sex and sexuality. That is. Yeah. A lot lot of kids are getting their sex education porn or, you know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if that's the only place, yeah, TikTok, people are learning about sex. I mean, I guess there's more avenues for education and people are utilizing those in social media, but vastly, we're confused as fuck. It's definitely a very confusing sexual landscape right now. And it's still, you know, just, um, I was thinking about this the other day, how, you know, I've been talking about sex for a long time now because, and in a lot of public settings and, um, you know, because of my work and whatnot. And I still feel very uncomfortable sometimes um, when I'm talking to certain people or about certain things. And I'll notice this wash of discomfort come over me. And, um, you know, I attribute that to my my upbringing as a pastor's child and being in a family where, there was just a lot of uh, taboo topics and um, but yeah, I, I think that I would probably have some of that discomfort anyway, if I didn't grow up in that kind of family, because our society really uh, fosters that. And um, just noticing that, um, you know, for most people that don't, you know, you and I have a, have a background in, you know, contemplative education and contemplative practice. And there's, there's um, this idea that feeling uncomfortable is actually not a problem, that that doesn't mean that you don't have the conversation. You just 
learn to feel okay with feeling uncomfortable. But for most people, there there isn't a practice around that. There isn't a language for that. There's not a um, there's not an intention to challenge. Hey, if I feel uncomfortable, does that mean that I shouldn't have this conversation, or or that this this conversation is dirty or bad? Or it, most people don't. I don't think tend to challenge what they're feeling when they feel uncomfortable. Um, and so maybe we start there, like where, how do we start to just understand that we're going to feel uncomfortable and it doesn't even matter how, how much sex you have and how progressive you get and how open-minded you are. Um, you should expect as a person in this world to feel some discomfort around some of these topics and what happens for you once you feel that discomfort, do you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel a wash of sexual energy over your genitals? Like, does that make you scared? Are you afraid that if you had that wash of sexual energy while you were having a conversation um, with a group of teenagers are you then afraid that you're you have some kind of sexual interest in in a teenager? You know, like where does this? How do you start to kind of like unpack that feeling? Sexual energy doesn't necessarily mean anything. Actually, <laughs> that's one thing that I think people get really freaked out about. I've I've had that a lot in my practice. Like I've heard people say like, "Oh, I I felt a wash of sexual energy while I was you know changing my kid's diaper," and I'm like, "So what are you?" <laughs> You know, you're not fantasizing about being sexual with your child. It was just a wash. It was, that's two different things there. So I think people are scared in general of their sexual energy sometimes. And that's a problem. They can't talk Mm. about it. Like, I think it's a great thing to be able to say out loud. I felt a wash of sexual energy in an environment that frightened me. Am I okay? Yes, of course Mm. you're okay. You're fine. You know, that doesn't mean you can be walking down the cereal aisle and feel a wash of sexual energy. That doesn't mean that you're going to rape the Fruit Loops, you know? I mean, I was just Count Chocula. Immediately you said that and I was like, Count Chocula. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we sometimes have this tendency to fully associate like what we feel with how we behave Like you'll find sometimes in the therapeutic world, um, people are afraid of their anger because they grew up in a home where if one of their parents got angry, they were breaking shit. So in their mind, angry means breaking shit. But anger is just anger. You don't have to break shit. (laughs) And it's the same thing with sexual energy. You can feel sexual energy. You can feel a wash of arousal. And that does not mean, that doesn't even mean that you are attracted to the thing that is in front of you when you feel that wash of arousal. It could be completely unrelated. Um, but I, I just think um, we have, you know, such a, a, a confusing um, lineage around feelings and, uh, you know, sexual impulse, like even biblically, like to think it is just as bad to do it. It says in the Bible in certain places, mm. you know? And, and so I think there, that really fosters kind of an attitude of shame. If I'm feeling this, I must be, I must be bad. I must be thinking bad things. I must going to do bad things. 
So we don't necessarily learn how to um, develop an attitude of trusting ourselves and our ability to work with our sexual impulses. You know, there's sort of this like assumption that we can't, can't handle our sexual energy. It's going to take over and then we're going to make all these bad choices. And, and I think, yes, that can happen if we're not talking about things. I think it's much less likely to happen in an open environment. You're blowing my mind here with this idea about the fear of the arousal. And I'm thinking about like just sort of the societal war on pleasure that's always been around, which definitely ties into that sort of like neo-Christian thing of like, it's unpure to feel pleasure in any way, you know, gluttony, greed, lust, like all those things Mm. are so tied to experiencing pleasure. And so it's such an old rooted unconscious fear taboo. If we ever feel pleasure, we're like, Oh God, I'm doing something wrong. You know, I don't think we can blame all of that on the Christians, Chloe. Am I showing my bias? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I like to blame stuff on Christians, but I just don't think we can blame it's the more so. It's that. more so like I just Christianity that sweeps across, raped and pillaged sure. indigenous land, and that you know, like it's been a huge predominant force of pillaging everything. So. That's that's true. And and I don't and I don't want to minimize that. But I also think that just biologically, we're wired to look for threat more than we are to look for pleasure. And that's just very, mm-hmm. you know, primitive biological survival instinct stuff. Um, another thing to just throw into the mix of of anti-pleasure. <laughs> anti-pleasure systems. Mm -hmm. Do you think part of the discomfort is in the fact that it's just like sex or sexuality or even like our nakedness is vulnerable and private and intimate? I think that's part of the discomfort is that it's, you know, not like for anyone else's eyes or ears or knowing in some capacity? I don't know. I mean, maybe, or maybe it's because we think that it's supposed to be like that. We think of it like this supposed to be this incredibly private, um, you know, uh, secretive thing. You know, but most people who who spend a week in a in a nudist community, right? Like they go in the first day, they're uncomfortable, they feel all these feelings. By the end of the week, they don't even notice that they're naked anymore, or that anybody else is. It just becomes kind of like, oh, everybody's naked. There's a weenie. There's a there's a boob. You know, and it's it's not even a sexualized environment. It's just. <laughs> 
it's just nudity, right? So there's, you know, we don't really know because we're, we're in this environment. We're not in an environment where, you know, we're not told that sex is private and genitals are private and sexual thoughts are private. And who knows what it would be like if we were somewhere for even just a week where that wasn't the storyline and other people weren't operating from, from that position. Mm -hmm. Makes me think about when I travel outside of the U S and am in hostels or interacting with people from different countries and their level of comfort, people from other countries and their level of comfort with their nakedness is on such a different integrated not weird level, mm. which is different from my like American socialization. Mm-hmm. And back to that feeling sort of afraid of the arousal piece, being taught that there's something about nakedness that is inherently sexual, which I don't agree with. And other countries and cultures don't agree with that America is sort of obsessed with in a lot of ways that the naked body is for sexualizing. Mm. I agree. Yeah. Which is why, you know, and nipple gets shown on a, <laughs> you know, during a, a football game and people are talking about it for years <laughs> afterward. It's like, it's a nipple. I mean, she even had a pasty on. It wasn't even full nipple. It wasn't even a full right. boob. Mm-hmm. And Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, right? I thought we were all on the same page. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're aging ourselves here. Shoot. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what example there is these days because... Like I said, media has become so extreme. And, okay, I I know where I want to go with this. Where are you going? Where there's really this push of, like, feminine power and taking back our sexuality and freedom. And, like, slut now is sort of a like a powerful term and like something to be proud of or like anti-slut shaming. And uh, it's very much, yeah, rooted in this like feminine power. And we've got Cardi B and we've got Megan the Stallion and we've got all these other women who are showing up in these ways and being sexual creatures. And it's really profound and um, great. And then, Where I'm confused is how we're saying we're empowered, we're sovereign, and then we still expect, how do I want to say this? In a sexual encounter with a male-identified person, we still are giving them all of the power to decide or their willpower is like the only power that exists in that moment as if we are Mm -hmm. these like meek, non-powerful, docile, wimpy, non-choosing 
entities. And I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. So I think what I, where I struggle with sort of the me too stuff is, are we sovereign, powerful beings or not? <laughs> I love how you, you're like, I want a black and white answer to this incredibly confusing question. It is right incredibly now. confusing. I think the way that you're putting that is, is, is skillful, Chloe. And it's a good question that, um, you know, is still working itself out. I mean, we're coming out of a period of, you know, like what I call the, she was asking for it period where a, a woman, and I say we're coming out of that, but that's from a place of privilege in Boulder, Colorado, right? You just head the other direction for 50 miles and you're in a completely different territory um, and a crime might be treated completely differently in in that area um, than it would in Boulder. But yeah, it's it's tricky business for sure. And I like what you're saying. I personally um, would like to see sexual interactions um, happening between two people who feel incredibly empowered to both communicate mutually about what they want to see happen and where things are going. And yeah, I think what you're saying is where you're struggling, if I'm hearing you correctly, is, you know, if like it is, is what we're saying as women that every four seconds you need to make sure I'm okay and I'm still a yes or I, you know, or you do not have my consent and, and there's no responsibility on my plate to say, Hey, wait, I don't want to go any further than that. No, we're stopping right there, buddy. That's kind of where you're running into that, that, that little wall. And I, and I I think it's an important question because, um, well, especially we want to, we want daughters to grow up being strong daughters and feeling like they is the message that we want to give to younger women. You need to make sure he asks you every step of the way, or is the message that we want to give that, Hey, you have every right to say, no, I don't want that. Yes, I do want that. Can we take this here? Hey, by the way, You know, just so you know, like I'm making out with you. I'm not having sex with you. You can touch my boobs. Don't stick your hand down my pants. (laughs) Like, what are we, you know, like, what are we, what are we communicating um, on a, on a larger scale? My concern about it too is just, I I don't know about you, Chloe, but when I was a teenager and I'm, I'm talking a lot about teenagers right now, or, you know, the, the younger population that, um, and I don't know why, but. Cause it happens to adults all the time. It doesn't happen to adults, but a lot, a lot of the, the messiness I'm seeing is right or like under 25, I 25 developmentally is a big age for men where their brains start functioning a little bit better. Um, but, but yeah, so, so I'm thinking a lot about these like emotionally messy sexual dynamics with people who are learning how to be sexual with each other for the first time. And so um, I'm, re- 
really just wanted to see everybody involved communicating and feeling really empowered and responsible for how they're engaging. And my concern is that that some of what's happening right now in this movement is is um, is not going to be fully supporting that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I get what you're saying and wanting to raise daughters and raise women to feel empowered to speak up. And there are a lot of women, including myself, who do speak up and then the person pushes and they push and they push and they push and many people give up. And from the research that I've been doing, Mm -hmm which was these two series that um, I was talking with Lisa earlier about. One was done in 2017 before the Me Too movement. And it's from a podcast called The Heart, which I don't know if it's still active, but she, Caitlin Prest did a series called No in 2017. I'll link it in the show notes where she breaks down her like entire sexual history and coming into her sexual self and talks a lot about consent and how no has been completely ignored time and time again. And then another series, which was sort of a rebuttal or really a response that was done by Radio Lab in 2018, which the series is called In the No, N-O, uh, parts one through three. Really, if you have listened to Caitlin Prest's uh, whole series, you don't need to listen to part one of In the No, but part two and part three are discussing like ignored no's and ignored expressions of not consenting and how there's continued to be a push and even the most like radically feminist empowered women were surveyed. A lot of college age women were surveyed saying, Oh, well I just give up eventually and get it over with because I don't want to hurt their feelings. And I've said no forcefully and I don't want to like wake up my roommate by screaming or fighting them. I don't want to do whatever. And so And I want to name my white privilege in that as well, because in some communities, it's legitimately not safe to say no in some ways. Um, And I'm struggling with this because the no's are ignored. And there's just like this continued push. And I think a lot of young men are raised or maybe it is that frontal lobe development and it is just like literally impulses, but I don't really want to chalk it up to that because I don't think that's fair. Um, and I don't, yeah, that, I feel like we're now we're talking about something else than what I was speaking to before, because I definitely was not talking about a dynamic where a woman is saying no. And that no is being manipulated or ignored or pushed again. But that happens, you know, we sort of are talking about the same thing because it happens all the time, all the time. But if that is happening, that is an incredibly, you know, different, different situation. 
And, um, and according to the law, that is non-consensual sexual contact. If a person is saying no and, and sexual contact happens, you know, then a law is, is being broken. But how socially acceptable is it? Like it's, it's very socially acceptable for women to agree like, oh yeah, sometimes I've just gone along with it because it felt easier to just get it over with and fake an orgasm Mm -hmm. to get out of there than to try to stop it in the moment. Like that is a resounding response from so many people. And that feels like a really important piece to me in all of this. And, you know, this is not just a conversation we're going to solve or figure out right in this like one hour of time. Um, But that is a pattern throughout both of these series that I listened to and in so many of the conversations that I've had with so many different women and also with men and in my lived experience, like I am someone who survived. I, I am a survivor of innumerable assaults. If we want to look at it from this legal mm-hmm. standpoint. And yet I mm-hmm. also so many times was like, Oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to get this over with so I can leave here or this can be done instead of actually fighting someone or like screaming or like doing whatever. So it feels really complicated and nuanced. And there are a lot of very like normal, respectable guys who have done this. And my issue is, I mean, there's, there's, it's just so not black and white and I'm trying, I'm trying not to like try to want to put it in a box and label it and have it be all like neat and clean and organized. Cause of course that's what all of our minds want to do. Like we're not comfortable with the mess and the not knowing. Um, But I struggle with like, well then why don't you just fight him? Or like, why don't you scream? Or why don't you run away? Or how has it become so socially acceptable for women to just like roll over and take it to get things over with rather than fight harder? Well, I think a woman's no is socially unacceptable on mm-hmm. in many environments. I mean, the, the, this is a, the, a, a woman's no is so different than a man's no. Mm-hmm. You know, when a man says no, it impacts the room in a completely different way than when a woman says no. So this is a, this is a much larger issue. Um, Mm. And this is, you know, and this is something that starts in childhood. Like um, if you look at two-year-olds, Chloe, they, they know what they want and what they don't want and they communicate it. Very clearly, I've never met a two-year-old that wasn't really sure about what they wanted, what they didn't want. They, their, their no was, you know, they weren't fucking around when they said no. Like these two-year-olds are very empowered around their no's and what they want and what they don't want, and they will fight for what they don't want and what they want. And and it's a very deep embodied knowing. It's a clearness that is incredible. So you see this in 
you know, two-year-old children while they're, you know, fighting for their autonomy and their individuation. And then what happens over time that slowly erodes that very clear embodied sense of knowing? Um, You know, it seems to stay intact for some people and not so much for others, and especially not so much for women. Um, For women to say no, you know, oh, she's a bitch. She's not caretaking. She's not a nurturing woman. You know, if a a mother, she's a slut. Yeah. She's a slut or, you know, she, um, she's frigid. Like, um, and I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about in, in, in many aspects of, of, of a woman's life. A no is, is hard to say. I think. I think that is something that I hear across the board and it's not something that's really welcome. Whereas typically if a man says no, um, not a lot of people are going to push back against that. No. Well, are you sure? Well, is there, you know, is there any way we could work something else out or um, so, so this, what? Just what tip. Tip. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky period of time and it's, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time to be a woman because everything is changing and there's more space to have a no and to stand up for yourself and advocate for yourself and know your boundaries. And yet if we look at epigenetics or, you know, intergenerationals like family trauma, our bodies are still going to have discomfort around doing that and around advocating for ourselves. And our, our parents, even if they tried really hard to, you know, raise us to be strong and empowered, they probably dropped the ball a lot of the times and, you know, didn't do as good of a job as future generations are gonna gonna do with with fostering that. So there's like a lot that's like coming out in the wash. Um and I don't I don't have what about a man's no in a sexual encounter like it's very socially unacceptable for a man to say no in a sexual encounter. We don't even talk about men's consent. There's just a social norm about men like, oh, it's a sexual encounter. Of course he's going to want it. Or if you don't want it, you're not a man. Or like, don't be a pussy. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, what if a guy says no? That's not even, we're not even there yet. In that capacity, mm. I feel like socially. Yeah. Yeah. For a man to say no. Or immediately a woman thinks it's, oh, like you're just, you're not into me, or maybe you're gay, or like you don't, you know, how can you know? Like, oh, I must not <laughs> yeah. be hot. And then they hate there's themselves. No it's like, there's no, yeah. there's no like middle ground there of maybe he's just not into it right now, or like it's not about that other person. It's sure. just really this is his boundary. That's definitely not socially acceptable. I mean, can you think of a time this week where somebody told you no and you didn't like it and you presented like something, some way to still try to get what you wanted? I mean, not this last week, but definitely. Not not sexually. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I'm thinking just in general. Like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, me too. Oh yeah, the the pouting. And I think about my family and growing <laughs> up. Yeah. And when like you didn't want to hug someone or when you didn't want to do something for someone and you said no, then everyone is mad or pouts or stomps around or is passive aggressive or takes it out Ooh. on you. And it's like, oh God forbid I ever have a boundary. And then I've definitely noticed myself do that same behavior when someone's given me a no. And I've been like, oh, like if I want to have sex with a partner yes. that I've been dating a long time and they're not into it, I'm annoyed. And that's not great. Mm. It's not, that's definitely shadowy. Maybe you'll withdraw your love or, you know, parents right. have different ways of manipulating their children to accommodate them. Um, and usually withdrawing if they don't. Right. Um, or punishing the child, you know, in some way. So there, there's lots of ways that we communicate over time to kids um, that, you know, having boundaries, having personal boundaries is, is not okay. And so it becomes, I think, really a story of the body, you know, that, that you hold in your body, that you tell yourself. Because the, the, the no and what you want and what you don't want is is in my opinion, inherently immediate, like that we have a system that is designed to know um, what we want to do. Well, you know, most, most of the time, like maybe it's a big decision, like <laughs> involving a lot of money or something like that. We might have some hesitation or whatever. It might not be crystal clear, but, you know, in terms of, of pleasure and connection and stuff like that, I think our, we have a pretty um, immediate embodied knowing that gets clouded, you know, we sometimes take on a story that our yes and our no is, is not okay, that we actually need to consider the other person before we consider ourselves. Um, and that becomes highly problematic in sexual situations that are just inherently so much more vulnerable. And that is a high risk situation. If I'm at the grocery store and I'm not good at my yes and no, I'm probably not going to, you know, it's not necessarily a high risk situation. If my clothes are off and I'm with a man that I don't know very well, that is going to be a situation that, you know, it becomes a, a lot riskier. Um, since you brought up the embodiment piece as well, I want to name, because I think it's important to name, that just because, back to that arousal piece and the fear of the arousal and the thinking like, oh, if my body is aroused, then something I must be sexually whatever, that just because our body is responding to the arousal doesn't necessarily mean that that gut no is wrong. Like the both can happen at once. Your body can be aroused and you can be knowing that this is not what you want, no matter what spectrum of gender you are. And I know that a lot of people who have experienced assault are really struggle with that and are confused because like, how dare my body betray me and be into this thing mm -hmm. when I'm not into this thing. And that can be really confusing for people in that sort of gray space. Yeah. yeah. 
That's a good, that's something wonderful to name because I think a lot of uh, survivors do struggle with guilt and shame because they maybe felt aroused or even had an orgasm during, you know, a rape or a sexual abuse of some sort. And that's, that's very, that's very common. Um, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. the body just responds and you're right. That doesn't mean that they were, um, consenting to that arousal is not consent. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. Arousal is not consent. I'm making shirts. I'm sending you a shirt. <laughs> Arousal is not consent. Yeah. I love that. It's so good. Yeah. But I think that that the the hookup culture is really contributing to a lot of these um, high risk, messy situations. And I've been thinking a lot about it. I feel like, like Tinder could do a better job. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how, but you know, like even having like a consent form on, on Tinder, because you're, you're having a lot of young people that are, are meeting up and they don't know each other. Like they don't have a history with one another. And then they're, they don't even know how to communicate with one another and they're jumping into bed, you know, into a place that requires a lot of communication to make sure everything's going to, you know, go okay. And everybody is, is able to, to get what they want and what they don't want, you know? So I just, I keep coming back to, and it's mostly, and I'm speaking to this because I have a lot of clients who, were convicted of a crime that resulted at, because of this, like these types of situations. And I just really think, gosh, like this seems like it was really could be, um, this could be prevented mm-hmm. if it was more, I don't know if there was just maybe even more information via Tinder on consent or the, just the laws like, Hey, like, you know, just because she's kissing you, doesn't mean you can slip it in <laughs> and that you actually could be convicted of a crime for that. I mean, some people don't know that. I mean, if you look at movies, you see that kind of thing happening all the time. Right. Guys see that, that, that happening all the time, or um, you'll see a, a lot of great sex scenes in movies that are really compelling. And the woman is initially saying no, and then succumbs to the, the uh, seduction of the man. And then they have what seems to be this incredible sexual experience. And so a lot of people are witnessing these um, interactions, you know, in, in movies or whatnot, and thinking that that's how sex goes. A lot of men think they know what a woman wants. Some men do. There is that one person out there that maybe has got it dialed in, right? I was like, you know, I mean, I'm, I think that every, every once in a while, there probably is a man that that's like got that figured out. But there's a problem if um, if a person thinks that they can intuit that in a sexual encounter with a woman that they don't know very well. Um, you know, a lot changes once you get to know a person, once you learn how to communicate, once you, you know, if you're with a woman who's experienced sexual trauma, that's important information to have, things like that. So, yeah, you just keep coming back to these young, younger populations, um, maybe alcohol and drugs involved, 
with people that you don't know very well. There's a new law in New York called, it's called something else, but it was initially called the yes, yes means yes law. And it's now completely Mm -hmm. illegal to have sex with someone in any capacity who is under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And there's no discrepancy on the, on the law on how drunk or how high or how much or whatever, if you have sex with Mm. anyone who is drunk or if you have sex with anyone under the influence of any substance, you're committing a crime in the state of New York now. Yeah. And that's, it's scary, right? What if you go out, your partner has a glass of wine or two glasses of wine that then becomes illegal. Like it's just, it's very wild. I have so many questions. I'll try to keep it short. Um, one question is like, what do you think could happen instead of every act being a punishable crime? Like what are some ways you think are better ways of dealing with this or uh, alternatives um, to less severe case? And I hesitate with saying less severe because it's really subjective in a person's experience. I don't want to take away from someone's sure. experience, but what do you think is yeah. a, is another option other than just immediate legal ramification? There has to be other things that can happen. Like that being the only thing, there doesn't seem to be any healing there. Yeah, I'd like to see restorative justice be utilized in in some of these situations. Right now, um, that's not really happening. Um you know, the sex crimes are kind of their own category in the the criminal justice world. And it's, you know, restorative justice just doesn't go there. But we also really need to distinguish between a person who is a predator and a person who maybe just needs more education, made a really stupid decision, you know, I mean, that to me, there, there, that there, there's a really important distinction that needs to be made. And that doesn't mean that the person who um, was the victim of that experience doesn't experience just as much severity in terms of impact, but how we are choosing to respond to those situations criminally to me is really problematic. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, um, the sex offender registry is supposed to be utilized um, to identify predators, not for not necessarily for um, for some of the situations that is being utilized now. So th- there seems to be some nuances that need to be teased out, and it's a confusing time. And where the responsibility lies is, I think, also very confusing. And and like I said, there are still places in America where there will not be rape charges filed because she was wearing this or she was asking for it or she was asking, acting like that. So that is still happening. So we have extremes in different areas in in America. And I think that's just like kind of adding to the confusion because I, I, I hesitate to, to, to say anything right. that might give the, <laughs> the extremes on the other side, more ammo mm-hmm. um, to continue to um, victimize, to, to continue to sexually victimize women um, 
you know, I certainly don't want to provide any more ammunition for that because that is still happening. There are still many cases of rape that are, you know, there are predators that are not being charged with crimes. That problem still exists. In a big way. Absolutely. How much money do you have? Are you white? You're in luck. (laughs) It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, that is, that is another issue. They, the socioeconomic status and how that seems to impact whether or not what you've done is actually a crime. Mm -hmm. I love talking about, about, you know, healthy sexual dynamics and focus, you know, like I, I'm excited right now about like, for example, um, people who love uh, gendered power dynamics, being able to really express that in, in the king community. That's incredible what's happening with that right now. I feel like the, the king community's really got some of this stuff dialed in you would yeah I think some people would think oh like that's that's where the sex crimes are going to happen and stuff like that um but it's the opposite I mean they do but that's where people are having really um great conversations and um you know really figuring a lot of stuff out I feel excited about like where we're headed I just think there's just gonna there's some mess right now around it's so it, yeah, it is rocky and it's emotional and it's and it's painful, right? Because you know, almost every woman I know has had an experience that with a man that did not a sexual experience that that did not feel good, that felt violating, that felt like a betrayal, that you know, um, that had to be worked through in therapy. It can be a partner. It can be a husband. It can be someone you've known, a best friend. You can know this person forever and still have that go down. Absolutely. And I, I want to say that I am so grateful for this conversation. It feels really timely and incredibly important. And you've given me a lot of things to think about on a topic that I already have been doing so much um, like so much research and exploration with for a crazy long time. And still I'm continuously humbled by how many different variables and facets of this that there are and things to look at and things to consider. It's just so deep in the many things that are involved in all of this and for us individually And I like that you're uh, talking about, you know, the positive. And I definitely want to end on that note and tell my listeners too, like, I will be doing a whole episode on the kink community and a lot of that information. So like, don't you worry, that's coming up. Um, And I'm curious if you have any tips or suggestions for people of any gender who as, you know, a practitioner, a therapist who focuses on a lot of things, including sexuality, identity, and individuation. Do you have any tips for people 
on how to start moving in the direction of their empowerment and using their voice and feeling safe in their bodies and also feeling safe enough to relax into pleasure as well. Yeah. I mean, I would say what pops into my mind first and foremost is that um, while you're learning to kind of be more embodied in that clarity around your yes and no, you're a no. If you're not a hundred percent a yes, and that is not crystal clear, you are a no. And mm. the more time that you can say no and feel and begin to expand your capacity to experience the discomfort you feel when you say no, when you let somebody down, when you take the risk that they're never going to talk to you again, or they're going to withdraw, or they're going to, whatever they're going to do, because you said no, the more that you strengthen that muscle, the more you're committing to your own, your, to your body, to your truth, to your body's wisdom, to your embodied wisdom of your yes and your no. Um, so that, I think that would be the, the best place to start is just practicing that no and look for those yeses that are 100%. Hmm. If you're still exploring your yes and no, you're a no. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many t-shirts that I could make just on statements that you have here, Lisa. (laughs) I'm glad glad that that resonates with you. Yeah. And like I said, like I'm I'm consistently humbled by this topic, even as someone who feels very comfortable and confident in this conversation, I am continuously learning all the time. I definitely don't have it right all the time. And I'm I'm just really grateful for you and your perspectives and your lived experience and how that has played a role in this conversation. And I also appreciate that you are someone who is um, providing this type of care for people and this type of um, space holding because a ton of therapists are not. And they're not comfortable with it and they're not taught about it enough. And that's its own issue. But if people, so thank you so much for being here and for this conversation and all of your wisdom and um, your, your grounded approach, it feels good. I like the spaciousness of how you're describing things and um, not readily putting them in a box. (laughs) Like my mind might be desperate to do. <laughs> There's no box. I could, if I could find a box to put it in, it would be comforting at this point, Chloe. <laughs> I'm out of boxes <laughs> around this topic. <laughs> this episode is an unboxing of consent and sexuality. Isn't that like a thing on the internet these days? This is an unboxing, everyone. Um, yeah. So where can people find you to either work with you or learn more from you? What is the best way for people to find you or utilize that connection? 
Oh, yeah. So I have a website. It's lisachathampsychotherapy.com. Or, you know, you can go to Norfolk University and take one of my classes. (laughs) Definitely do that. Cool. All of that I'll include in the show notes. And yeah, just again, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've covered a lot of really important ground. And yet we're just scratching the surface, right, of such huge conversations. Last week I did an episode on men's mental health. And I feel even as someone who has suffered greatly at the hands of men in my past, I still feel really, really passionate about making sure that we're not just leaving men behind or not taking their care and the gentleness that they deserve and the love that they deserve and the knowledge that they deserve and the time and the patience. Like I I still want to take them into consideration. I don't want to just be in the mind that blames them for everything. I just don't think that's fair. I don't think that's a good solution. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I don't, I don't look at the men and see them as foot soldiers for the patriarchy. I mean, they're, They're suffering from the system that has been created also. What we're dealing with now is is not healthy for for any gender. Um, So true. Yeah, it's so true. And that's that's important to to realize. And, And I think most men want to have healthy, consensual, great sex. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I, I don't know a lot of men. In their mind, they're like, you know what? I, I think today I want to go out and have sex with a woman against her consent. You know, I don't think a lot yeah. of men who are convicted of crimes necessarily have that in their minds. Like, oh, like I'm going to make somebody have sex with me when they don't really want to. I mean, I, that does occur sometimes. And we have a name for that kind of person. <laughs> and we have a diagnosis for that kind of person. But I don't think that's what is usually happening. That's why what I'm speaking to is, you know, just saying this is a dynamic that is not not healthy for anybody involved, doesn't feel good for anyone and for most people involved. So, you know, I love that people like you are just having conversations and putting it out there. And um, how do we start having better sex? That's all I want for people. I just want to have earth shattering, <laughs> mind blowing, great sexual experiences that make them feel amazing in their body and cared for and loved and seen and tended to. And also to have fun. Like life is so serious. Let's like have some fun. Let's do it in a safe way though. And I think everyone has a yes. lot more fun. Everyone is actually enjoying the experience. And that's what we all want. So yeah. Thank you again. This has been so great. You're welcome. This was fun. I love this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, I'm going to have a lot of resources in the show notes. So also reach out, reach out to a friend, really utilize your community, utilize any resource that's out there. And I think it's important to name to be patient with yourself in the process of learning about yourself and maybe unpacking previous prior experiences and just being gentle with what comes up because it is a process and an unfolding 
And sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it, it happens really slowly and make sure you're aware of who you trust and can rely on to be there for you in these moments. So take care, everyone. Take care, Lisa. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here and for listening to this episode. It means so much to me that you've taken the time out of your day to spend time with me, to spend time with yourself. And in turn, when we take care of ourselves, that ripples out into the people that we love and come into contact with as well. Please like, follow, subscribe, and the best of all is to share. If you feel that this show would be a vital resource to someone that you know and love, send it their way. You never know how much it could actually help. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best thing that you can do is to write a review on Apple Podcast. Hearing what you think and seeing your reviews is such an amazing way for me to have a better understanding of what it is that you're really enjoying about the show and how it's impacting the way that you live and show up in your own life. If you would like to connect with me, please feel free to email me at chloe at downwithmydemons.com or you could always DM me on Instagram at Chloe Lionheart. I love hearing from you. It's one of my favorite things. And please feel free to reach out if you have comments, concerns, questions, or a desire for more resources. It brings me a lot of joy to empower you with resources on your path. And I'm happy to do so. Episodes come out every week, roughly. (laughs) Um, On Thursdays at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you would like to work with me one-on-one to get a little extra support on your shadow work path and to have greater resources, tools in your tool belt, and a deeper understanding of what makes you the most magical you that you are, please feel free to reach out to me and inquire for more details about that path. Again, thank you so much for being here. Time is precious. This world moves fast. And I really appreciate you taking the time to slow down, be present, digest it, take it in, or disagree, or rejoice, or have whatever emotion comes up, and to be with it and feel it. I recommend while listening to this podcast that you have a resource of people in your life, a support system, and team to reach out to if need be. And if you don't, I'm happy to be a resource and support for you. For every episode, I add resources to the show notes. So that's a great way to find at least initial things that you're looking for. Check that out below. Until we're with each other again, please be very gentle with yourself. Being human is super tough. I send you my love, warmth, and care. Take it easy.